0: The Old Pilot's playing Tales, Names to Conjure With If you, dear listener, are anything like the usual aviation enthusiast, you'll have a list of famous names in your head that you can quote at parties to bore your friends like Wilbur and Orville, Blériot, Richthofen, Lindbergh, Sikorsky, Whittle, Jaeger and such... But I wonder if you can play some of the others who deserve recognition, like Charles Taylor. Certainly if you went to the Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, or have recently been awarded an FAA Mechanics Certificate, I would hope at least the name or face would be familiar. It was back in 1868 that Charlie was born, in a log cabin, that lay on the banks of the Sangamon River, which winds its way through Piet County in Illinois. He quit school at the age of 12 and started work in the bindery of the Nebraska State Journal. He enjoyed working with his hands and found he had a talent for it. He was 24 when he married his girl, Henrietta, and they moved to Dayton, where she had been brought up. Charlie found work in the Stodden Manufacturing Company, who hired him to make farm machinery and build some of the latest fashion in transport, bicycles. After a while, he moved to a new firm, a family business, fixing bicycles, but soon he was being asked to help run the place. One day, the owners came to Charlie and asked if he could help with a project of theirs. They wanted him to build a lightweight internal combustion engine. Charlie scratched his head and told them he'd give it a go. He was given some rough sketches of what was needed, and he sat down to design his very first engine. He got a nearby foundry to cast an aluminium block and crankcase and then relying entirely on his own craftsmanship and ingenuity and using only a lathe, drill press and his hand tools he cut and fitted every other part himself. It only took him six weeks and when finished it was a marvel of simplicity and reliability. He'd been asked to build an engine that could produce 8 horsepower, but in fact, his little engine that weighed only 152 pounds, that's less than 70 kilos, could produce an amazing 12 horsepower. Charlie's engine had a vital job to do, and a few months later, it was mounted in the right flyer. As Orville lay in the cradle of the world's first successful powered aircraft, it roared away, winding the chains that turned the propellers, launching the Wright brothers to fame and success. Charlie never sought notoriety from his work with the Wright brothers, and few ever recognised his contributions, but his efforts were pivotal to the birth of aviation. Charlie always wanted to learn to fly, but never did. The Wrights refused to teach him, and tried to discourage the idea. They said that they needed him in the shop to service their machines, and if he learned to fly, he'd be gadding about the country and they'd never see him again. At the ripe old age of 67, and almost penniless, Taylor obtained a job in the tool room of North American Aviation. He never told them of his association with the rights, and when questioned about it, he replied, Why should I? Most of us have heard of Sir Frank Whittle, the man who single-handedly invented the turbojet engine but little is heard of his German equivalent, Hans von O'Hain. Completely independent of the Royal Air Force officer, he was simultaneously designing the Heinkel engine HES-1, which would successfully power the HE-178. His engine ran during the same month as Whittle's first engine, and the Heinkel 178 would fly operationally first. The aircraft was small, with a high-mounted straight wing of wooden construction. It featured a nose intake, a metal fuselage, and a tailwheel design. But when Ernst Düdet and Erhard Milch, ministers of aircraft production and design, watched, they were unimpressed. It could reach 372 miles an hour, that's nearly 600 kilometres per hour, but only had an endurance of ten minutes. Undeterred, Von Ohain went on to develop the HES-8, which would power the HE-280 fighter bomber. At this point in the war, there were a number of turbojets being developed in Germany, and Heinkel was so impressed by the concept that he headhunted other designers to join his company, which led to the advanced HES-011 with a two-stage axial compressor design. This engine was planned to power a raft of new German military aircraft, such as the focke wulf Flitzer fighter, the Blumenwos P-212 tailless fighter, the Heinkel P-1079V-tailed all-weather night fighter, the Heinkel 343 four-engined medium bomber and several Messerschmitt jet fighters. However, there is little doubt that Sir Frank deserved credit for the invention of the jet engine since he openly filed patents for his design in 1930, a full seven years before von Ohain's design first ran. But by the time they had their engines into flying aircraft, the German had more than caught up his aircraft getting airborne in 1939, whereas Whittle's Gloucester E-28 didn't take off until 1941, after both the German and Italian versions. Olive Ann Meller opened her first bank account aged seven. By 11, she was writing cheques to pay all the family bills. When her family moved to Wichita, she skipped high school, attending the American Secretarial and Business College instead. At the age of only 20, she got a job as an office secretary and bookkeeper at a newly formed company, Travel Air Manufacturing, in Wichita, owned by Clyde Cessna, Lloyd Stearman and Walter Beach. The company made aeroplanes, and by the time their first Travel Air Model A biplane was in production, Olive had taken the time to understand how every part worked, and then about how the aviation business operated from the floor up. Her enthusiasm and work ethic was soon noticed, and she was promoted to become the office manager and secretary to Walter Beach. Their first aircraft was gaining popularity, particularly after it took the first three places in the 1925 Ford Reliability Tour. By the end of the 20s, Cessna and Stearman had moved on, whilst Travel Air gained popularity with the flying public when their aircraft, Mystery Ship, won the first Thompson Trophy race, becoming the first civilian plane to defeat military fighter aircraft in open competition. By now, Olive and Walter were a married couple, and with the departure of their partners, they scraped together enough to form Beach Aircraft. Their five-seat, single-engine biplane featured a fine interior, staggered wings for visibility and control, retractable landing gear, and speeds greater than the fastest military scouts. They entered their stagger wing into the 1936 Bendix Trophy race, and Olive persuaded female aviators Louise Thadden and her co-pilot Blanche Noyes to fly their aircraft. In their flight from New York to Los Angeles, Thadden and her co-pilot were victorious, setting a new world record. As the company prospered, Walter Beach became ill, but Olive Ann stepped up into his position as the head of the company, becoming the first female executive in the aircraft industry. Under her guidance, the company retooled for the military and opened new avenues. Almost every Army Air Corps bombardier and navigator was trained by beach. Their factories were kept busy building more than 7,400 military aircraft. The end of the war saw the beginning of the twin beach lines and the iconic V-tailed Bonanza an instant success. In 1950, Walter succumbed to his illness, but as the chairwoman and president... Olive Ann continued to nurture the company from success to success. The company diversified into producing missiles and systems for NASA space missions, as well as continuing to produce renowned aircraft such as the Baron, Musketeer and King Air. After a lifetime of achievement, which included a merger with Raytheon, in which Olive was elected director, she had seen her company grow from 10 employees to 7,800 with an annual sales figure of over $265 million. By the time she had quietly passed away in her sleep in 1993, Olive Ann Beach had been awarded the Wright Brothers Memorial Trophy by the National Aeronautics Association, the highest honour the aviation fraternity bestows, for her contributions to the aviation industry and she'd been inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame. Two years after her death, she was also inducted into the International Air and Space Hall of Fame. During Bessie Coleman's short life, she made her mark on the world of aviation like no other. She was born into a family of sharecroppers in 1892 and worked in the cotton fields when she wasn't studying in a small Texan segregated school a four-mile walk away. She was the 10th of 13 children. Her mother An African-American and her father had grandparents who were Cherokee. In her early twenties, she worked as a manicurist and in a chili parlor, and hearing stories from pilots returning from the Great War, she started to dream of becoming a pilot too. American flight schools wouldn't take blacks nor women, but she managed to befriend Robert Abbott, founder and publisher of the Chicago Defender, who encouraged her to study abroad. He helped her to gain sponsorship, and after learning to speak French in a Chicago language school, she left for Paris and a seat in an old Newport 564 biplane. In 1921, she became the first black woman and first Native American to earn both a pilot's license and an international aviation license from the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale. When she returned to America, she became a media sensation. There were few avenues, though, for her to benefit from her qualification, except the dangerous world of barnstorming, something she was currently ill-equipped to do, but there was little chance of her finding anyone in the United States to teach her, so she returned to France. She continued to train there, and met Anthony Fokker, who encouraged her to travel to Germany to train with one of the company's pilots. Returning home, she became a star on the barnstorming circuit and was much admired flying her Curtis Jenny biplane. Her very first event was in honour of the veterans of the 369th Infantry Regiment, the mainly African-American soldiers known as the Harlem Hellfighters. She gained a reputation as a skilled and daring pilot who would stop at nothing to complete a difficult stunt. In Los Angeles, she broke a leg and three ribs when her plane stalled and crashed, but the thrill of stunt flying and the admiration of the cheering crowds were only part of Coleman's dream. Committed to promoting aviation and combating racism, Bessie spoke to audiences across the country about the pursuit of aviation and goals for African-Americans. She absolutely refused to participate in aviation events that denied people such as herself attendance. She had a dream of establishing a school for young black aviators, but she wouldn't live that long. However, she did have an enormous influence on a whole generation of African Americans. The pioneer aviator Lieutenant William Powell dedicated his book black wings to Bessie Coleman, saying, We have overcome that which was worse than racial barriers. We have overcome the barriers within ourselves and dared to dream. In April 1926, at the age of only 34, Bessie Coleman took off in her recently purchased Curtis Jenny JN4. The aircraft had a history of mechanical faults and her family and friends implored her not to fly, but she took off, with her publicity agent, also a pilot, to prepare for a parachute jump the next day. She was flying without her straps done up, so that she could look over the side of the cockpit at the landing ground, when, at 2,000 feet, the aircraft unexpectedly pitched over, throwing Bessie from the cockpit. She fell to her death. Her agent fought the aircraft but was unable to regain control of the machine and died on impact amongst the fiery wreckage. On examination of the crash, it was discovered that the controls had been jammed by a wrench used to service the engine. After her death, Bessie Coleman was inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame, and the National Aviation Hall of Fame as well as the International Air and Space Hall of Fame. Roads, schools and scholarships have been named for her, and the first African-American female astronaut in space, Mae Jemison, carried a picture of Bessie on her first space mission. Finally, a name to really conjure with, Harry Houdini. The famous Hungarian illusionist, escapologist, vaudeville and film star was capable of many seemingly miraculous feats, including that of piloting an aircraft. It is claimed by many that he became the first man to fly a powered aircraft in Australia. Australia when, in a fanfare of publicity, he made three flights at Digger's Rest in Victoria, near Melbourne, in his voice biplane, which he had shipped over for the feat. His historic flight was in fact certified by the Aerial League of Australia, but a flight made in a Wright Model A just a few months earlier by the English racing driver Colin Defries is now accepted as the first. This is despite arguments by Digger's Rest Historic Society that Harry's flight was the first recorded flight and others say that since DeFry's crashed after only a 100 yards his wasn't a controlled flight at all. The Aviation Historical Society of Australia gave Colin DeFry's credit as the first and even Harry Houdini couldn't wriggle out of that one. If you enjoyed this story, then a great way to show your appreciation is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find us at AirlinePilotGuy.com.